Hello and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Melissa Jobson and I'm standing in for Alan Boswell while he's on paternity leave. Today, we'll be speaking about the African Union and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Solomon Ayele Derso, founding director of Amani Africa, an independent policy and research organisation with a focus on the African Union. Solomon also recently served as chairperson of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Thank you very much for having me, Elisa. 2021 was a turbulent year for Africa in which we saw the intensification of the bloody civil war in Ethiopia, coups in Chad, Mali, Guinea and Sudan and the strengthening of Islamic militancy and jihadist attacks in parts of the continent. The African Union Summit, which brings together leaders from the organisation's 55 member states, took place in Addis Ababa at the beginning of the month, just days after a popular coup d'etat in Burkina Faso toppled the democratically elected government. Solomon, to what extent did questions of peace and security dominate the summit's agenda and did the leaders take any key decisions that could help resolve or mitigate the continent's worst and most entrenched conflicts? You are absolutely right. The minds of many people in the summit was very much concentrated on this uh, very troubling uh, peace and security developments on the continent. Uh, Most of all, the uh, resurgence of coups in various parts of the continent, uh, most notably in West Africa. The opening speech of the AU Commission Chairperson, Musafaki Mohammed, unusually speaking very openly and candidly about these issues. The new AU Assembly Chairperson, President of Senegal, Macky Sall, as well as other uh, heads of state and government. So there is, uh, and there was during the summit, a great sense of concern and alarm about whether the attempt to end military coups on the continent is facing a major setback and basically experiencing uh, a reversal of sorts. The question of unconstitutional changes of government was supposed to be a central topic for debate at that summit. Do you have any insights on how that discussion unfolded? And where are the various fault lines within the African Union on this issue? Because I know, for instance, following the coup in, in Sudan in October, that there was a significant split within the African Union Peace and Security Council regarding the suspension of Sudan's membership? I think that's a very important question in terms of whether the African Union, particularly its member states, have the level of conviction and commitment for their their tolerance to coups as they used to have during the early years of the African Union. That particularization of the PAC on the 26th of October, unusually, it took 10 hours. This is an exceptionally long time for the Peace and Security Council to take on a single agenda item. And it is a manifestation of this divide between those that prioritize security and order and sovereignty and those that insist on the upholding of the African Union norms relating to constitutional order and democratic governance. So this has become a major concern and it is one of the factors actually that must have played a role in encouraging the recurrence of course in parts of the continent. 
do we really need to be worried about the reoccurrence of coups in Africa? What, what does it say about the state of democracy in the continent? The continent has experienced a major regression in the democratization process over the course of the past several years, whether that is in terms of, for example, the extension of term limits through manipulation of amendment of constitutions by incumbent leaders, whether it is in terms of the manipulation of elections in order to ensure the continuation in power of the incumbents, whether in terms of the functioning of state institutions that are meant to hold state authorities accountable and operate within the bounds of the rule of law, whether that is in terms of, for example, most notably, the oppression of civil society organizations freely and independently, the media, and the occurrence of violations of human rights. So it is within this uh, unhappy political and constitutional context that big events of uh, the military taking matters into their own hands. And and some of the the coups seem to have popular support. I know in Burkina Faso in particular, the coup was greeted by many citizens as a good development. How can the the AU and leaders and government, how, how can they reconcile you know, the action that they take against military regimes with the fact that sometimes these coups, the military junta's actually have popular support. So I think it's important to make a distinction between what the popular support is for. Is the popular support because people would like to be ruled by uh, military people or is it because the military actually ousted a government that people do not like and support. Various you know, anecdotal and also polls that have been undertaken by Afrobarometer, for example, show that people are not disposed to be ruled in a military rule. So what we can gather from the supposed support from the public is not for them to be ruled by military, but for the ousting of a government by the military, a government that they don't support. Uh, The suspension of these countries ordinarily comes after the coup happened, but no substantial measures were taken by the African Union or the Economic Committee of West African States, for example, when things were failing to deliver to the expectations and demands of people, when governments were, for example, manipulating elections, as we have uh, witnessed, one of the triggering factors, for example, in Mali, as you may recall, was the disenchantment on the part of the public about the outcome of the parliamentary election, which triggered mass uh, public protest, creating the context for the ousting of the president there. Or in Guinea, it was preceded by the removal of the constitutional provision that limited the term of office of the president to two terms, leading to the creation of another mass discontent. An election also took place in 2020. So it is about whether or not the African Union and other regional bodies are able to address the major democratic deficiencies and misdeeds by incumbent governments before 
these conditions create lead to or precipitate coups. I think you know the limits certainly seems to be the limits of the African Union's engagement on on unconstitutional changes of government seems to be uh, limited to you know military takeovers. Is the AU thinking about doing anything to address this and to broaden the definition of what an unconstitutional change of government means or so that it can encompass this new phenomenon of, of constitutional coups and constitutional amendments? If you look at, for example, the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, there are five grounds that it lists or five what you may consider to be situations that constitute unconstitutional change of government. One in respect of which there was the most consensus was around military coup d'etat. On that one, it appeared at some points, particularly in the until 20, around 2010, for example, that all countries on the continent, member states of the African Union, shared the sentiment that there should be no tolerance whatsoever to military coups. There is a provision in the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance that actually specifically states, for example, the refusal of a, uh, a leader who lost election to transfer power to the winner constitutes an unconstitutional change of government. This was, for example, invoked in relation to Cote d'Ivoire in 2011, when the then president refused to hand over power to the current president. Then you have another ground which specifies that the manipulation of constitutions for purposes of extending one sustained power is also another instance for unconstitutional change of government. Now the question really is, how do we move from here to effectively exclude this kind of cases from happening on the continent? What are the criteria that you need to put in, in place? How do you go about assessing whether or not, since you can't exclude the possibility of countries legitimately changing constitutions, including for that purpose? I mean, the, the taboo on coup d'etat that um, the African Union has managed to establish is perhaps one of the most significant achievements um, it's had in the almost 20 years since it was, was founded. How did this norm come into being? And, and, and I think it might be useful for our listeners to sort of understand what powers the African Union has to enforce it. So this norm came into being at a time of transition on the African continent, particularly what is known as the third wave of democratization as it was blowing through the continent, there were concerns that this turn of democratization in the 1990s may be impeded and undermined by men in uniform turning their guns for seizing power. And it was in that context that the Organization of African Unity, then just in the years ahead of its transition into the African Union, initiated certain processes for purpose of dealing with particularly coups and other forms of unconstitutional change of government. A decision was also taken for the Organization of African Unity, a secretariat, to initiate a discussion for the adoption of mechanisms 
for preventing unconstitutional change of government. Uh, in 1999 in Algiers, uh, such a decision was taken. And then in Lomay in 2000, this Lomay declaration on unconstitutional change of government was adopted by the Organization of African Unity. Later on, this actually was entrenched in the grand norm of the African Union as part of the Constitutive Act establishing the African Union. In a way, the AU norm on unconstitutional change of government is given a rather special status, special legal status in the African Union legal order by having been entrenched specifically and having been singled out in the Constitutive Act of the African Union. So you have the norm banning unconstitutional change of government, but also a norm sanctioning and giving authority for the African Union to enforce this norm. That is what makes the AU norm on unconstitutional change of government exceptional. Given the number of coups that we have seen in recent months, and also the fact that the AU itself has not necessarily been consistent in how it has dealt with the recent coups, for example, Chad wasn't suspended from the AU, uh, whereas in a, the AU was very quick to suspend both Mali and Burkina. How um, strong do you think that this this norm is now, and is it is it under threat from these coups that we've seen? You are absolutely right. The actually the way the Peace and Security Council of the African Union handled the seizure of power by the military in Chad can be considered as one of the lowest points in the Peace and Security Council's enforcement of the AU norm on unconstitutional change of government. But from a broader perspective, that incident coupled with the level of debate, the level of division within the Peace and Security Council and indeed within the broader African Union membership is indicative that we do not have, as in the past, the level of unanimity around the principle of zero tolerance to military coups. And this is a very concerning development. So one of the measures that is urgently needed is the need for reconfirmation and reaffirmation of this unanimity for this norm on unconstitutional change of government with zero tolerance across the board for any form of military coups, irrespective of the circumstance in which it came. And the response to coups at the same time can't be just imposing sanctions and leaving it at that. Because we have been there, for example, in Mali in 2012. The same thing happened. What did we do? We imposed sanctions. We went to elections. And look where we are today. The conditions that actually create for the return of coups in the same country need to be addressed as part of the response to coups. You can't just impose sanction or suspension and then leave it at that. You need to engage the national political forces and social forces in order to effect the necessary institutional and policy and constitutional reforms that are critical for preventing these events from becoming cyclical in those countries. Thanks, Solomon. I'd like to talk now about the founding of the African Union 
uh, in July, the organisation is going to celebrate its 20th anniversary. And one of the significant differences between the AU and its predecessor, the Organisation of African Unity, um, is the AU's peace and security mandate. I was wondering if you could tell us about the vision that the African Union's founders had for maintaining continental peace and security. What role was it supposed to play in this vision? You're absolutely right that one of the major factors that distinguishes the African Union from its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity, is what I consider to be an interventionist peace and security architecture that it has put in place. And this came against the background, as many of us uh, would recall, of what happened in the 1990s, most notably the most horrific of events on the continent, the 1994 uh, genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. President Mandela spoke very candidly, challenging his peers, saying that we cannot expect the international community to be the one coming to our rescue, that we have it within us to take responsibility for protecting our people and maintaining peace and security. And the idea was for the African Union to have uh, the tools, institutions, decision-making processes that make it possible for the African Union to take specific actions, whether in terms of deploying mediation processes, peacemaking processes, whether in terms of initiating and deploying peacemaking, peacekeeping operations or peace support operations, whether in terms of supporting transitions through post-conflict reconstruction and development. So this is basically the vision behind the African Union's interventionist peace and security order, as it were one of its very paradigmatic shifts was the principle of non-indifference, which under Article 4H of the Constitutive Act provides that the African Union had the right to intervene in member states in cases of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. You've mentioned the African peace and security architecture. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? What are the different elements of this architecture and how is it supposed to function? The African peace and security architecture has two dimensions. Uh, the first dimension is the normative dimension, which basically outlines the principles and the governing norms of the African peace and security architecture. And the second dimension is the institutions and decision-making processes, as well as implementing mechanisms. These are meant to translate these objectives and normative principles into reality by taking specific measures for resolving conflicts, for peacemaking, for peacekeeping, and also post-conflict reconstruction and development. So the institutions at the center of the is the Peace and Security Council of the African Union. This is the highest decision-making body uh, of the AU on matters just like the UN Security Council, having 15 members, but no veto or permanent members, although we may speak of Nigeria as being a de facto permanent member of the Peace and Security Council. Then you have the Continental Early Warning System, which is meant to actually alert decision makers within the African Union system on the risks and potential 
eruption of conflict or violence in a particular member state so that these AU decision makers take measures for preventing these risks from translating into actual full-fledged conflicts. You also have what we call the panel of the wise. This is meant to be the preventive diplomacy outfit which can be utilized for purpose of using the early warning that comes from the early warning system and then go out into the countries facing these risks and engage stakeholders for purpose of initiating measures that would prevent these risks from materializing. You also have the African standby force, which is the peacekeeping and intervention outfit, which is used for purpose of deploying peace support operations as happened, for example, in Darfur in 2004, Somalia in 2007, and most perhaps recently uh, in Central African Republic in Mali. You also have uh, the various regional economic communities that are meant to operate in alliance with the African Union within the framework of the African peace uh, and security architecture. So you've really clearly explained what the African peace and security architecture is and how it's supposed to function. But how does it actually work in practice? I mean, some of the elements like the Continental Early Warning System and the peace and security are much more developed than others. For example, the the Panel of the Wise and the the African Standby Force. So perhaps you could tell us, you know, how the architecture is, is working in practice. The different institutional structures of the African peace and security architecture have experienced an even development and level of operationalization. The Peace and Security Council, for example, is the one that has achieved the most development and level of operationalization. Although, even with the Peace and Security Council, certain elements, particularly the subsidiary bodies of the Peace and Security Council, there are a number of them that are still outstanding. But that is the most uh, advanced. The others, are still work in progress in so significant ways. The continental early warning system, as far as its institutional setup is concerned, uh, as far as the gathering the, of data is concerned, it is also achieved uh, a level of significant development. But in terms of the process of relaying early from the continental early warning system, to decision makers, particularly the Peace and Security Council, there are still major gaps there. How early warning information is to be shared with members of the Peace and Security Council, for example, is an area that hasn't worked optimally. Then you have what you mentioned, the African, uh, the, the, pan, the panel of the wise. The panel of the wise has been very great, mostly in respect of what are called thematic reflections in taking some major peace and security issue and having an in-depth reflections on those peace and security issues and reporting back so that certain measures are put in place by the African Union broadly. But when it comes to the, its role in conflict prevention, it leaves a lot to be desired. Preventive deployment or preventive diplomacy is an area that hasn't been 
delivering or that hasn't been op- optimally developed within the framework of the African peace and security architecture. The African standby force is the other one. While the African Union has succeeded in deploying peace support operations in various settings, including in some of the most difficult settings, such as, for example, in Somalia, where it has registered significant progress towards stabilizing Somalia. The African standby force, which is organized based on the five regions of the continent, haven't been deployed as it was envisaged to be deployed. Much of what you've been talking about there and, and you know, the, the purpose of the African peace and security architecture was to sort of really bring to life the AU's aspiration to find African solutions to African problems. How realistic is this proposition, given some of the financial and other constraints that the um, AU and many of its member states face? And what, what does African solutions to African problems mean in practice? I think the, the question what it means is the one that creates a great deal of confusion and debate and discussion. The African solutions to African problems, when it was conceived, is meant to rally African states for assuming greater responsibility for the issues and challenges facing the continent. This African solutions to African problems is not meant to preclude or exclude and keep Africa as an island in a time of greater interdependence uh, among various parts of the world. It is rather premised on working in tandem with and as part of the global collective security system. That is why you have clear recognition having been given in the protocol establishing the Peace and Security Council, the protocol establishing the African Peace and Security Architecture to the role of the United Nations Security Council. What it is supposed to do is basically in the search for solutions to the peace and security challenge of the continent, that Africans have to be at the center of both the diagnosis of what the problem is, but also the proposition of how that problem needs to be solved. And this doesn't at all preclude the possibility of having joint analysis, having joint understanding about how to go about resolving the conflict situation. So if, by your question, if I understood you to mean that when you say whether it is realistic, if you mean by African states or the African Union assuming exclusive responsibility for dealing with the peace and security challenges of the continent, there is nothing realistic about that. But that's not also what it is meant to be in the first place. And any interpretation to that effect is totally uh, outlandish. The African Union has relied on a number of partners to sort of help it uh, fulfil its mandate in, in peace and security. And you know what you were just saying then about the fact that African solutions doesn't mean Africa going alone, I think has been demonstrated in, in the AU's willingness to, to work with other countries, with non-African institutions. Who do, you, who do you think the AU's most important partners in, in peace and security are? 
how how do China and Russia feature into this the the range of partners that the AU has? So, uh, from a peace and security perspective, the most important partners uh, of the African Union have been the United Nations and, from a financial perspective, the European Union. It is to be recalled that it was on the request of the African Union that the European Union established the Africa Peace Facility, which became the most important source of funding, not only for purpose of enabling the African Union to respond to emerging crises, but also for purpose of establishing and operationalizing the various components of the African peace and security architecture. Without that level of partnership between the African Union and the European Union, we wouldn't have seen the level of progress that we have seen in building and operationalizing the various components of the African peace and security architecture. We wouldn't have seen the African Union being able to sustain some of the responses that it deployed uh, on the continent, whether that is in terms of mediation and peacemaking efforts or processes through its special representatives, through envoys or through high-level panels, or the deployment of peace support operations such as the African Union mission to Somalia. So, I think there is a need for giving due recognition to the importance of this partnership between the African Union and the European Union, between the African Union and indeed the United Nations. Uh, the United Nations being the global body on which the maintenance of international peace and security is anchored and the relationship between the African Union and the United Nations uh, Security Council through their annual consultative meeting in terms of facilitating policy coherence, facilitating consultations and mutual understanding have a great deal of potential for deepening further partnership and coordination and policy coherence between the African Union and the UN. And of late, of course, as you rightly pointed out, there are uh, new entrants to the scene uh, of peace and security in Africa. And these new entrants include China uh, and Russia. Although the level of cooperation between, for example, the African Union and China is much more, much more than that of the African Union and Russia, for example. There is an institutional dimension to that of the African Union and China. It's, it hasn't uh, reached that point between the African Union and Russia. Um, but in terms of funding, uh, the level of funding, you know, the scope of uh, finance that is allocated uh, for purpose of supporting peace and security in Africa uh, within the framework of the African Union, uh, there is nothing to date that matches that of the support that the African Union received from the European Union. Thanks, Solomon. It's been really interesting speaking to you today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Elisa. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. To learn more about our work or read our reports, head to crisisgroup.org. I'm Alyssa Jobson. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Namby.